I want to challenge the notion that risk is something that you really can assign a probability to and assign a valuation to, although the entire insurance and risk trading and derivative system depends on that, but just to be more skeptical of it and also to be aware that uncertainty is a huge part of it. Being comfortable with going through a world that you don't know. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Michelle Wooker. Ostensibly, we booked this a few months ago to talk about her new book, You Are What You Risk. But Michelle is famous for having coined the term grey rhino. And that term has made headlines around the world. Ahead of the COVID-19 pandemic, people believed that we had ignored the signs of a grey rhino on a horizon. Stock markets have crashed when Chinese officials have warned of grey rhino financial risks. Central banks and regulators around the world use the term grey rhino or grey rhino theory, as do business strategists and boards of directors. And here we are, Credit Suisse is in the news today, UBS making a bid, Silicon Valley Bank has collapsed. And so Michelle has been warning, she says, like a broken record for a while about systemic risk in the financial crisis. So we touch on that, we touch on that a little bit because that's her area of expertise. But we talk about her book and we talk about the perception of risk and how people feel about risk and how if you're running a company, you can ensure that your board or your advisory team or your executive team is looking at risks the right way, understands what those risks might be, and even understands the perception difference in the team so that a team is not suffering from groupthink around its risk and perception of risk. So that as you assess how your business moves forward, you don't make the wrong decision, but also not all risks are bad within something that somebody perceives as a risk or a threat. There's a decision to be made and there might be a way in which you can see an opportunity in that risk. So we talk about how you might build your team or manage your team to spot those opportunities. So I had a fantastic conversation with Michelle and learned a lot. I'm sure you will too. Hi, I'm Michelle Wooker. I'm the author of The Grey Rhino and You Are What You Risk. I am talking to you from Chicago, Illinois today. And Michelle, why did you feel the world needed a book on risk? I feel like we need a way to talk about risk that works both for risk professionals, the people who stay up at night thinking about these things, and for everybody else, you know, within a business, in life, people who are affected by risk, but don't necessarily have a good vocabulary for talking about it. 
And often people who are scared, they think of risk and they think of all of this quantitative stuff and models and things and don't think enough about the behavioral side of it. And also a lot of professionals have told me that they needed a better way to talk with everybody else in the company with with other people. They really needed a bridge. And that's what I'm trying to do. A lot of my work is about talking to the experts, reading the experts, doing the deep dive into the really geeky stuff, and then pulling out what the rest of us really care about. And what, what do you use as, what's your definition of risk? How do you do that? That's a good place to start. Start with a bridge is to like, what's your definition? Well, you know, it's funny. I ask that a lot in, you know, workshops and webinars. And it's actually kind of fun that we can do this online now in a way that we didn't used to, because I get three sets of answers that that differ a lot depending on the age, the industry, the interests of the group and their inherent risk biases. And so there are really three sets of answers. One is around peril, loss, danger, scary stuff. And the other part is about opportunity, risk appetite, taking enough risk, quote unquote. It's about all the good stuff. And then there's the, well, it depends. And that's the place where I spend the most of my time realizing that a lot of people only look at the positive or they only look at the negative. In particular, a lot of these day traders the last couple of years have, until last fall perhaps, had been looking at risk and assets just going up and appreciating, appreciating. And there are other people who just look at the downside and I think it's important for everybody to realize what sort of a bias you bring to conversations about risk and how you can offset that. For me, risk is about choice. Every choice you make is a risk. Every risk you take is a choice. I read, unfortunately, after I finished writing You Are What You Risk, that each of us makes, give or take, 35,000 choices a day. That's a lot of choices and a lot of risks. And so with the definition of risk, one of the things that I'm trying to reconcile is the old-fashioned, you know, classical economic definition of risk, which is something for which you can assign a probability. You know, you can say, here are the odds that this might happen or not. And with actuarial tables, with everything else constant, then there's some reason to that. But a lot of the quote-unquote probabilities that we see have very little to do with reality. You know, as we saw with the subprime loans being investment grade rated in the great financial crisis, as we saw with the the people who gave Silicon Valley Bank and other banks a clean health rating very shortly before it was clear that they weren't in clean health. So there's this idea of risk as something where you can assign a probability and there's uncertainty being something different that you can't assign a probability to. But in real life, risk and uncertainty go together. They're inseparable. When most people talk about not liking risk, they're probably talking about not liking uncertainty. They're talking about not knowing. So I want to challenge the notion that risk is something that you really can assign a probability to and assign a valuation to, although the entire insurance and risk trading and derivative system depends on that. But just to be more skeptical of it. And also to be aware that uncertainty is a huge part of it. Being comfortable with going through a world that you don't really 
know enough about that you don't have as much control over as you might think or want to have. And but people, I think you've got a good example of it in your book. People perceive the same things differently. Very much so. And that goes back to this notion of this sort of set idea of risk. You know, are, is this riskier than that? And I think of risk as walking into a room full of funhouse mirrors, where when you change your perspective a little bit, the risk itself, the nature of the risk changes. You know, my favorite example is, you know, I'm five foot three and a half. But if I'm walking down a dark alley at three in the morning, it is objectively not the same risk as a male you know, football linebacker walking down that alley in business. It's not the same risk for a woman in a non-gender typical position to make a mistake as it is for a man. There's research that shows this. And so there's all sorts of situations, but it also depends, facing the same situation, it depends on how much knowledge you have. That both decreases your amount of discomfort with a particular risk, but it also actually decreases the risk itself because there's a greater chance that you're going to be able to manage it. There are risks that you have control over or that you don't, and that changes how you perceive them. Or there might be a situation where there, there are a lot of the academic studies on this, where subjects are presented with two different options, whether it's like a lottery or a, you know, different financial options. One is quote unquote riskier than the other. You might have two people choose the exact same risk. But their risk tolerance is very different. For one, it might seem it's like, okay, I'm going to do this. And for the other one, it's not a big deal. So even that thing that on the surface looks like the same risk is not necessarily so. And we sort of take for granted that we make decisions and you know, some of us understand that we do it emotionally. Some of us understand we do it more rationally. But people don't understand enough all of the influences on why we take the risks we do or why we pass on the risk that we do. And it has to do with a lot of factors, some of which we can control and some of which we can't, but which we can optimize for with the things that we can control. And it's amazing to me that people make so many decisions, not really understanding what is driving them. That's, that, that might lead to choices very different from what they think they want. And is that just down to the information? I just remember reading how many people had died in car accidents in the US post 9-11 because they had chosen not to fly because they perceived flying to be riskier than driving an automobile accident. Yeah, there's a very interesting debate going on right now about airplanes and kids, you know, small children can ride for free on their parents' lap. And there's been all this, th these new reports of turbulence and things. And so there's debate over what to do because some children have been hurt because they're not in a safety seat and things like that. And so there's this debate over, well, do you require parents to buy a seat so they can put the safety seat in? Well, that might mean that a lot of parents can't afford to drive. And that actually is going to end up in more fatalities because they're not taking the plane. It suggests to me that the people who are thinking that have never had a small child. And the idea of pinning a small child in a safety belt, like you have two chances of that, slim and none. I mean, it, the child would just scream and eventually you'd take them out. So you'd have bought the seat, but it wouldn't be any better. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's and it's a very tough it's a very tough decision. But there's you know there are people who will look at the numbers and in many cases this is the experts, this is the policy people, this is you know the airline executives or other business executives uh, saying, oh well, here's what we've calculated this risk is, and so it's safe. And they say that in a very authoritative way, and it's often not what their customers, you know, what consumers, what other people perceive, and that gap between the perception of people making the decisions and the people who bear the consequences is a really tough thing for every aspect of business. You know, for marketing, you know, are you marketing something to people who don't believe what you're saying? There's also evidence that people believe that products from other countries are, quote unquote, not as safe as theirs. You know, the standards are very different. Some people think that their standards are better and somebody's and other countries are worse. So if you're selling things across borders, you've got to think about very different safety standards because you've already got a handicap in how people perceive your products. And so how does this, how do you think this shows up or what's the downside once you've established what risk is and that people perceive it differently? What are you, what can we do to mitigate this? What downside are we trying to prevent? Well, try to prevent bad decisions, things that hurt your customer base, that, you know, send your company into bankruptcy, things like that. And it really starts with awareness so that if you know that there's a certain bias, you can correct for it. And this awareness starts with something that I call the risk fingerprint, uh, which is a metaphor. If you think of, you know, you put your finger on the biometric machine with the little green light at the airport, you know, it leaves a print or you go to a crime scene, whether it's a victim or the criminal, leave a print on the wine glass. And that's what a lot of, say, financial analysts might call a risk profile. Those are, say, the risks that you take. And if you look at the risks that someone has taken, that can tell you an awful lot about that person, much as that biometric indicator does. And so if the choices that you make are your risk profile, your risk fingerprint is what leaves that impression. And like a real fingerprint, there are three elements. The first is the genetic immutable part, the arches and the whorls and the loops, the shapes that you can't change. It's why the fingerprint is such a great biometric. And that's your innate personality. It's whether you're calm or anxious when you deal with risks. It's whether you are methodical or impulsive. They're just like personality traits, what you do. The second part is think of, think of you cut your finger with a knife and that's going to leave a scar, an indelible mark on the biometric indicator. Similarly with human beings, if you take a risk or if you're, something happens to you, that lived experience is going to leave an indelible mark on how you deal with future risks. And that interacts with your innate personality types. Uh, I, I like to think of the person who cuts themselves with a knife while they're cutting dinner. And one person freaks out and they don't want anything more dangerous than a spork ever. And the other person says, oh, I cut myself, stuck a Band-Aid, I survived. I'm going to be a sushi chef. You know, so it's that combination. And then the third part is where I spend a lot of time with clients. And that's what can you do to create the right environment, whether social or physical or processes or habits that help you to make better decisions and to optimize those processes and environment for the innate traits and the lived experiences that you've had. So that might include social, you know, the people you surround yourself with, a personal board of directors or, you know, your risk 
committee, the people you turn to for advice, and also the people who can say, hey, you always look before you leap. Let's take some deep breaths. Physically, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on that influences our risk-taking. The temperature in the room, colder it is, the more risk-tolerant you are. If you eat spicy food, you become more risk-seeking. The color around you, the smells, whether you're smoking or not, whether you've had Tylenol, there's some recent research says that Tylenol might make you more risk-seeking even the day of the week. So all of these things, and then the processes, and that's really important for leaders, whether you're on a team or a CEO or a board of directors, and that is how do we make decisions? How do we create the right level of structured debate to make sure we're looking at the options, to make sure that our biases aren't pulling us in a direction that's not the right one? So all three of those together make up your risk fingerprint, the innate personality, the lived experience, and then the environment that you create and reinforce through through business processes. Alcohol, lack of sleep. Oh, that, yeah. Lack of sleep. Yeah. Well, you look at traders and a lot of them have, in fact, there's a trading coach who I interviewed in You Are What You Risk, you know, about the biometric indicators that can show you if if you're too stressed out to be making big trains with hundreds of millions of dollars and things like that. And that's important. You know, your cortisol levels, your heart rate variability, all of those things are important. And they can be a signal to say, hey, let's wait an hour. Let's go take a walk around the block. Let's talk to our chatty best friend who always says the thing that nobody else will say. Let's do that before we go ahead with making a risk decision when we're not in a great state to do it. And if you think about a team making a decision, a board of directors, maybe, how do you try and balance the risk profile on the team? You just need to be aware of the risk profile of the team. This is a great question. It goes to all the research over the past you know, 10 years and more that shows diverse groups tend to make better decisions, that they're more likely to consider alternatives, that they're more likely to think things through. So one, you know, the typical demographic diversity measures are a start, whether it's, you know, gender, nationality, age, ethnicity. Certainly you want industry diversity. Certainly you want diversity of perspectives so that some of the people on your board are in touch with what your customer base thinks or your investors or your employees. We don't often enough think about risk diversity. Uh, there are some stereotypes about gender or ethnicity and risk choices, which are way off mark and which most of us don't even realize that we have. There clearly are industry differences. And even within industries, you know, a trial lawyer is going to have a very different fingerprint and profile from a contracts lawyer. But there's research that shows that certain personality types tend to cluster in certain careers, you know, air traffic controllers or creative people. And so if you have different industries, you're probably going to get some risk diversity. But I think it's really important to understand where people are coming from if they normally say, okay, what's our process? Let's talk this through. Or if they just kind of you know, move fast and break things. I really encourage people to look at something called the risk type compass from a group called Psychological Consultancy in the UK. And they've got this really great tool called the risk type compass, where they ask you a lot of questions about choices that you would make. And they'll come out and tell you uh, what your risk type is based on that, whether you are more methodical or impulsive, whether you are more calm or anxious and different profiles in different parts of your life. Because you might have someone who's very risk seeking in 
their financial decisions. But in health and safety, they're like, no, you're not going to find me bungee jumping or, you know, base diving or anything like that. And so when you look at your group, you know, it helps actually to make a, uh, you know, to really look to see what the profile of everyone in the room is. And Jeff Tricky, who created this, told me that it's amazing when he's done this with boards, he's often found that people with similar risk types often sit next to each other in the boardroom. And once you know that, you'll know if you have a bias towards one sort of decision or not, and whether you need to, you know, bring in outside experts or whether you need to to change your process a little bit just to make sure that you're not biased in one direction or the other, or that the bias is appropriate or not for your particular company and strategy. I remember reading Ricardo Semler talks about in Maverick, his first book, about how he was always amazed in the board where there'd be a discussion about car parking policy or whether people liked a particular marketing campaign or not, and everybody had an opinion. And then they were doing some multi-million dollar mergers and acquisitions and it went through on the nod because they didn't have an opinion because they felt they didn't have enough expertise to sway it one way or another. So there's another element there, which is not just their risk profile, but also their perception of their own knowledge and expertise. Yeah. that And that has to do with confidence or overconfidence. There's risks that people who are overconfident are often likely to be <laughs> further off the mark than other people. But it also speaks to the importance of having outside opinions, the, you know, the dummy opinions. I mean, there, I just saw a story this week about forget who it was. Some company had come up with some Easter candies and they had an, an Easter bunny. When it came out, everybody who looked at it kind of laughed. As, that does not look like an Easter bunny. That looks like something I'd not say for work. And if you had somebody who was not part of the company who'd been involved with the design the whole time, they could have looked at it with a fresh eye and said, let's go back to the drawing board with that. And so you just cannot underestimate the power of the, you know, the for dummies outlook. What size of decisions when you're working with clients? Because some things are important, some things aren't. Where, how do you help people draw a line which says this is a decision bigger than X that we, or riskier than X that we need to then apply this process to? Well, actually, your your comment riskier than X. That's a question I often ask people to ask because they'll look at something as you know risky, and I say, okay, compared to what? Because you're making a choice here, and you know I've been really surprised about the scope of application for this. I mean, I came to you know gray rhino theory, the you know how you deal with the big obvious scary things with a horn coming at you through sovereign debt analysis and sovereign credit risk. I mean, thirty thousand foot kind of stuff. And then I went around the world and people said, well, how do I apply this to my personal life? And I was like, well, that's a huge difference in size of risks. And so I've got a sort of a schematic for how you prioritize things. And some of that actually has to do with these internal personality traits, like how you perceive a certain risk. In the pandemic, you see all these stories about, oh, people are making riskier decisions. They're quitting their jobs. They're starting businesses. They're whatever. And my point is that they're not necessarily making riskier decisions, that they've reprioritized what they're willing to risk or not. And then when you're talking about business risks, there's a whole set of things to look at. There's the, you know, how big is it? How close is it? How fast moving is it? Then there are the meta risks, which I spend a lot of time at. Those are the structural risks. They're the flaws in your corporate culture or decision-making process or things like that that you've got to address before you can actually really fix 
the individual parts of things. So part of that analysis is, okay, if I fix this problem, will it solve other problems or will it stay broken until something further up in the food chain gets fixed? And how related is it to other risks, which leads to how you find you know, strange bedfellows or not so strange bedfellows who can help you to solve the problem and reduce the risk. And also something people don't pay enough attention to is that humans often are more afraid of taking a risk to reduce a risk than of sitting still. You know, they'd rather be wrong in a group rather than right alone. And that goes to social risk. I've just read a new book by the guys who wrote about, it's called Jolt. It's a sales methodology book from the guys who talked about challenger sale. And they say, actually, about 60% of the time, the customer is absolutely clear that the status quo should be changed, but they do not want to be the person who made the decision because it might go wrong. And the upside is for the company and the downside is all personal. And so the whole book is about this is sort of a revelation and the best salespeople manage to overcome this and the rest of them don't. But that talks to your point there about people's perception of making a decision. Yeah. And I got asked once after a talk I gave, you know, what if I'm bringing these things up to management at my company, these gray rhinos that we're facing and they don't do anything about it? And I have to say, well, the answer might be maybe that's not the right company for you because you don't want to be on a sinking boat. Whenever I think about management decisions or knowledge not going up through a company that pertains to life-threatening risk, I always think about NASA and the two space shuttle disasters. And in both cases, people further down the organization had articulated the risk to their manager, but the manager didn't want to push it up. What, have you, what do you think about how do you get the whole organization to be able to share bad news then? There's lots of approaches. There's, you know, there's Adam Grant has talked about Bridgewater and there's sort of a knowledge on it. So it's actively encourage that you challenge the status quo. We've seen a lot of companies, particularly over the last two decades, start to add chief risk officers, you know, starting with financial institutions, you know, except for Silicon Valley Bank, which went for eight months without one. They just reappointed one, appointed a new one in January. You know, having somebody who thinks about those things, who helps to pull together all the strands of risk, whether it's, you know, operational or financial or strategic, or otherwise, you know, having someone who's on top of that is really important. And the other part is to be able to communicate the opportunity that goes along with a risk that people, you know, as I mentioned, people have biases that either goes one, one way or the other. And you see, you know, in the movies, these crazy bossy bosses who are like, I don't want to hear problems. I want to hear solutions, which, you know, you don't always have a solution. But if there's a way of pitching it in the first place saying, hey, this, there's an opportunity for us to deal with this because our competitors are not dealing with it. I often ask people to think about, you know, think about the big gray rhino coming at you. And what are you going to do? You just stand there and get trampled, which unfortunately happens too often. Are you just going to kind of step out of the way, let somebody else get trampled? Or are you going to harness the strength of this thing? I mean, you know, every single VC wants to know at the top of your pitch deck, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And so a problem is an opportunity to solve it. So I think some of it involves really reframing the way that the company thinks of risk. 
And there's really great writing and research around how to create the right environment. You know, I think of the whole psychological safety movement and Amy Edmondson's work and others. And, you know, how do you encourage people to be comfortable with failure? And a lot of that goes to meeting design. You know, do you have a devil's advocate? And another term I learned much more recently was angel's advocate. You know, if your group always says we can't do that because X, Y, Z, have someone assigned the role of saying yes no matter what. Yeah, particularly someone who's used to saying negative things. And the opposite, you know, the devil's advocate should be someone who's used to being the yes person. So get people comfortable in playing different kinds of roles so they can see other perspectives and make sure that in group settings, the people who are being quiet have some input because they're usually the ones who are listening and thinking the most. And make sure you've got the different points of view represented. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. There's a a phrase what's you know when you get bad news what what would have to be true for this to be the best news we've had similar sort of idea deliberately forcing yourself to be in a different mindset where you're open to opportunities or spotting a risk and getting people to play that game i mean often when i've got a client and we've done a sort of three-year plan everybody's quite optimistic and you go okay well but what is it that we probably already know that you know that pre-mortem so what is it that's going to undermine our confidence I love that pre-mortem. That's a concept I use quite a bit too. You know, when our company fails, why will it have failed? And scenario planning also. You know, James Lamb and I wrote a piece recently for some boards magazine about some of these big global geostrategic risks for 2023 and how it's so important to incorporate scenario planning into, you know, look, how is this going to affect our operational risks? How is this going to affect our trade policies, how it's going to affect our clients, our geographical situation. Because when you have a gray rhino coming at you, it's going to look different to you than it is to other people, because you're going to have your own set of challenges and opportunities that that come with that. Just to find gray rhino for people who aren't familiar with your work. So it's the big scary thing that's coming at you. It's obvious. It's probable. And you are much more likely to let yourself get trampled by it than you think, but not necessarily. It's really a challenge to take a fresh look at the obvious problems, the ones that are on the board agenda, the ones that you all know about, to keep you from just shutting them out, because that's how our brain works. It's like living next to a train, you don't hear it anymore. And that's why some of the most obvious problems and challenges are the ones that don't get the attention that they deserve. But it's not inevitable that you ignore it. And so that's a really important point is that the thing is coming at you and you've got a choice over what to do about it. And don't just take for granted that you're dealing with it just because it's obvious. I, I mean, that's you're right. As human beings, it's always fascinating that smokers can be completely aware of the risk that they pose to themselves and yet do it as well. Or a stat that I think I'll get right from Peter Atia, where he says in the US, 54% of people who have a heart attack turn up dead in hospital. And of the others, the other sort of 50%-ish, 85% of them actually make no change to their lifestyle. And so change is hard, even if you know you should change, or you just assume you're going to be in the group unaffected by the gray rhino and hope cross your fingers that luck is on your side. Absolutely. And some people are more comfortable with change than others. 
some people are more comfortable with uncertainty. You know, some people are are more proactive than others. And if you know that you tend to fall into one subset of people that, you know, you're denying the problem or you're recognizing the problem, but coming up with 452 reasons why you don't have to do anything about it. Or if you're really trying to figure it out, where are the resources? What do you need to do to solve it? And each one of these challenges is different depending on your innate personality and what you do to make sure that your behavior is optimized for who you are underneath. And we're just recording this a week after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And you said earlier there wasn't a risk officer in place for a while and a new one was appointed in January. Do you have any perception or do you have any observations looking at that and thinking, here's how some of your theories have played out there? One is you know, not having the person there who's saying the things that nobody wants to hear. You have people making decisions. There have been some news reports about a number of management and board selling shares in the months leading up to what happened, including the days leading up to the bank being being seized. And that says to me they knew something was coming and they were doing something that actually accelerated the problem rather than than solved it. There's also the there's some sort of systemic but perverse incentives having to do with, and this is really geeky, I'm sorry, but that they were holding some U.S. Treasury securities at what's called hold to maturity, which means that they were on their books at what they paid for them instead of what they were valued at the market. And of course, you know, when interest rates go up, the value of existing securities goes down because people sell those to buy the higher yielding ones. And so there, there also are some rules in place that make it very hard to hedge that interest rate risk. And so, you know, there've been a lot of critiques of the bank for not having hedged the interest rate risk, but it was a regulatory issue and it was a cost prohibitive issue. We've also seen a lot of discussion about change in regulations in 2018 that made it much easier for problems like this to get bigger and bigger at smaller banks. Well, even though this is the second biggest bank failure in recent history, but, you know, that in 2018, this law was passed and a number of people, including Elizabeth Warren, said, hey, this is a bad idea. This is going to create more risks that banks are going to go under. And of course, that's what happened. So, you know, you saw people when those regulations were changed saying, here's a gray rhino coming at us. And there were enough people who said, oh, nothing's going to happen. Oh, we're forgetting the great financial crisis. And people who, who saw more benefit, and often there's this bias that when we see, the more benefit we see to ourselves, the more likely we are to underestimate the risk. And also that you had a load of businesses, a smaller number of VCs who were involved in that larger number of businesses. And so you had a, you've got a smaller number of people who have to perceive the risk, who are ringing each other up going, have you moved your money yet? I've just moved my money. And you know, you unlikely to happen elsewhere. I mean, there was certainly stuff happened in the media, but it happened unfolded in sort of 48 hours. Yeah. And, you know, people talk about the almost $2 billion in losses on the treasury securities when they had to sell them. You know, those losses don't show up until you sell the securities. But I've read somewhere, was it like 24, 25% of their depositors were pulling money out? And, you know, you can handle $2 billion, but not, you know, 50 billion or whatever it ended up being. And so that, you know, that certain, that concentration, the industry concentration, the absence of 
real helpful diversification. And then there are some ethical issues with, you know, what happens? You know, you tell, obviously, if you know that a bank is in bad shape, you don't want your the people you've invested in to have their money there, even though you told them to put their money there in the first place. So you've got this ethical dilemma. It's like, do you tell them to get out of the way or do you do something to make sure that the bank is safe so that they're not endangered anymore? Well, I certainly saw a number of people losing sleep, 24 hours, 48 hours of sleep as they moved money or got their portfolio companies to move money. Yeah, We're hearing now, oh, it's, this isn't systemic, but then you saw problems with Credit Suisse. You see there, the FDIC has talked to U.S. banks with $620 billion of these you know, hold to maturity securities that there are $620 billion of unrealized losses on those. And you're seeing markets falling and Whenever you have a, an interest rate cycle of rates going up, you start seeing problems like this. And this is really only the beginning of a lot more to come. And anyone who, say, read Charles Kindleberger or anyone else on monetary cycles and business cycles will have seen this coming. And a lot of smart people have been talking about it. And, you know, I've been sounding like a broken record about the financial fragilities that have been created by this long period of super low interest rates. And once that changes, we're going to see zombie companies. We're going to see zombie banks. We're going to see a lot of losses. What is it, Michelle, that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? By earlier, what do you mean? As opposed to not today. A couple, you know, I would have, you have been nice to know that, you know, it was at the, on this particular day that this particular bank was going to be the one that triggered the whole thing. But obviously nobody can know that. And we get so obsessed with predictions that often you know, we'll try to create such a small area of predicting that it becomes impossible to predict. And that's part of what my work is about. It's like when you see the big outlines of something coming at you, you don't know exactly when it's going to fall apart, but you know that it is. And you want to be thinking about that ahead of time, because once it hits, you're in this sort of panic stage where you want to do something, anything, but it's often the wrong thing. And so you really want to have made some preparations ahead of time, which includes, you know, the diversification and the rainy day fund and things like that and having a good crisis team around you and a good risk officer. But, you know, if I or anyone knew exactly what day, what institution was going to fail, you'd be rich. Yes. Brilliant. And other than The Grey Rhino and your new book, You Are What You Risk, what, what other books do you think people should pick up and have a read? Well, one of my favorites when I was researching You Are What You Risk is The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, which is by a trader turned a neuroscientist, really talks about some of these physical manifestations of risk. And I loved that. And then I'm reading right now about two thirds of the way through. It was recommended by my best friend, the world's happiest librarian. And it's called Death and the Penguin by Andrei Kirkov, who is a Ukrainian writer. And I'm just absolutely loving it. So nothing to do. I mean, I guess there's risk. There's he's the protagonist is definitely in a seriously risky situation. So maybe that's why I like it. But it's, you know, it's good characterization and plot. And I'm dying to see what happens next. I'm about two thirds of the way through. So that's a novel, The Death and the Penguin. It's a novel. Yes. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, it's very serious. And I wrote an op-ed in the local newspaper in Waco, Texas, about something about unemployment and the economy or something. So in the 1980s, early 1980s. And a close friend of my father's, his tennis buddy, 
who, you know, one day had to cancel tennis because he had a meeting with Mr. Gorbachev, as his secretary said. So he had my dad drive me into his office and Mr. Rappaport, who described himself as the only Jewish socialist multimillionaire in Waco, Texas, brought me in. He asked what I was reading and I gave some sort of, you know, serious, boring response. And he really encouraged me to read more fiction. And I had no idea what a mentor was. I don't think I really learned that word to probably till I was in my 30s. But I think he was my first mentor. And that's one of the most valuable pieces of, of, of advice that I got is to read fiction and was actually reading about how the UK government is commissioning some speculative fiction to think about what are the possible things that could come in front of us. So highly recommend it for stretching your imagination, for getting your brain out of all the geeky stuff that you read during the day if you're way too serious like I am. So yeah, fiction. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.